You're listening to Creative Voices, sponsored by Treebark Store. Okay, so Jeff, um, the other day, my partner went into the hospital, mm-hmm. and um, it was just a random, uh, random, uh, standard kind of check, right? So they're just random pregnancy. Sorry, a random pregnancy. Ran- random pregnancy. Uh, <laughs> random hospital. Uh, standard hospital check here at uh, the Galway University Hospital. And it's a nurse who who does takes the bloods and everything and chats about everything. And Sinead was talking about the recent uh, hacking. Mm. And, oh, my God, isn't that terrible? You know, what kind of people would do that? It's awful. And the nurse goes, well, that's what they're telling everyone happened. That's not what actually happened. And Sinead at first kind of thinks, she explained to me after, I'm obviously not allowed in, right? Yeah. But Sinead says to me, you know, initially my thoughts were, oh, she's going to tell me that there was some other kind of technical detail that I wasn't aware of. So she goes, oh, really? Like, well, you know, quite innocently kind of, oh, you know, what happens? And the nurse says, well, realizing she's got an audience, um, it's all a big cover up because what's happening is they found out that all the vaccines are actually killing more people than COVID did. And it's, they needed to wipe the system to, and Sinead's, now I've had I've got one other story to regale you uh, with, uh, by the way, Lucy. But Sinead's obviously in there as a pregnant woman going, "I need to get my blood." And this is a nurse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. talking to her, completely straight-faced, mm-hmm. po-faced, telling her that there's a big cover-up. Now, with that, I just want to introduce uh, Dr. Lucy Michael, um, who is a sociologist as well as a consultant on equality and integration issues. Um, she's the co-author of a book along with uh, Brian Fanning called Immigrants as Outsiders in the Two Irelands and is also uh, has a collection of essays called Unsettling Whiteness, which is, as the name implies, uh, an attempt essentially to uh, interrogate the kind of general understandings of, of whiteness. Um, she's a commission member on the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission and a leading member of the Fingal Communities Against Racism uh, activism group. Is that fair to say, Lucy? Yeah, it's fantastic. And I caught you on the radio talking about uh, how you deal with people who have somewhat strange uh, or unique unique views on things. But when you're looking down the barrel of a gun like that with someone who's telling you, in some cases, someone who's supposed to be an authority on things that, hey, there's this big secret that only I know about. How do you deal with that? But I'm telling everyone. Can you can you tell me that? Well, what do you do with that? Well, uh, <laughs> hi, and thank you for having me uh, on your podcast. It's lovely to be here. Um, and uh, yeah, it, look, it's enormously difficult. We are in the middle of a very odd situation that's put everybody under pressure. And you know, people are under financial pressure. They're on, um, under emotional pressure. They've lost loved ones. Um, you know, they haven't done things that have been normal for them for a year. Uh, and that plays on people in different ways. You know, all of us have spent too much time on Facebook. Come on, admit it. Um, and it brings you down rabbit holes. You know, we know that uh, two thirds of people who end up in extremist groups get brought there by the Facebook algorithm. You know, that's incredible, yeah. right? And that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the, the time you spend used to spend looking at cat videos. Now you think, well, maybe just check out this conspiracy theory because. Well, it's interesting. You know, I I don't really believe it. But of course, the more you read, the more you become convinced. And, you know, it would be easy to say, look, it's people who 
um, you know, are very damaged by the pandemic or very vulnerable or whatever. But that could be any of us because mental health is a, is a huge problem uh, in a world that puts you under so much stress at work, economically, in housing, you know, and then the pandemic comes and throws your world. Any of us are vulnerable to trying to find an explanation for it that that just isn't, look, you got messed over by the system. Like, this is not a perfect world. It's nice to have something that's coherent. Unfortunately, a lot of the conspiracy theories just aren't coherent. They just lead you down this illogical rabbit hole. Uh, But, you know, that's kind of the point of them. They lead you to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing so that you try and work out what it is. And then by the time you think you've worked out what it is, you're a member of QAnon. And, you know, that's what's happening all over the world is people start out with perfectly legitimate questions about, you know, why is everything being shut down? Why have I lost my job? You know, why can't I see my mum and hug her? Um, You know, why has a virus, when we've seen previous pandemics, you know, they were restricted to other countries, they were restricted to China, or they were restricted to an African country, they never made it here. So people are asking big soul-searching questions and the Facebook algorithm is helping them. Yeah, fair enough. So I'm just curious then, how many, like, you said it could be anyone, right? And that you, it's a question of the algorithm. But, I mean, I, I don't know. It, I guess the question I'm going to ask is, are you saying that there isn't a particular type of person who might be more susceptible or that there aren't? Have you seen trends in certain kind of, areas for one of a better word that's you know indicates that some people are just more likely to some people can be more are more susceptible to hypnotism i mean look you know if i started narrowing it down for you who's most likely to be enamored by conspiracy theories and and look conspiracy theories are just different explanations for what's happening right they they can seem bonkers by the time they're presented back to you and you don't believe them <laughs> but the person who's got to believe them has got there through a series of steps quite quite often a long series of steps and by now 12 months of following them right so they are in a very different yeah. place to you might be when you're asking a question right so one you've got to give them the um give them that understanding of that distance right they have been a long time on this journey and people who are used to questioning the status quo are more likely to engage in them. So we know that, for example, people in the wellness industry, people who are in yoga, who are gym trainers, uh, who are involved in well-being, um, they are, they increasingly are involved in promoting conspiracy theories. Um, they're people who are used to thinking about, well, you know, why am I uncomfortable and what can I find that will make me feel better about it and make others feel better um who else you know people who have been critical of government well that's a lot of people in ireland in the last decade right (laughs) so that's a huge proportion of the population and i can honestly tell you i have been very surprised shocked even and disgusted by some of the people in my own network who have come to me with you know Really? You know, oh, I suddenly think this and don't challenge me on it. I'm like, I wasn't going to challenge you on it. Um, But I'm really curious why you think it. No, 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 you're not. You're asking me because you're going to challenge me. Like, well, yeah, okay. You might be right, to be fair. Eventually, I'm going to challenge you on this, but I'd love to hear why you think it. Um, it, But, you know, these, uh, you've got the full range, you know, the, the, I think the disadvantage of the, the news talk interview you mentioned at the start was that, 
they really featured one interviewee who was caught on the hop on the street who just, you know, portrayed a particular image that I think, you know, kind of fit that <laughs> a, a particular idea about who are the outcasts in this sense. That's not reflective of who is picking up these conspiracy theories overall. Uh, no, Isn't you're not? talking about really highly educated people, including healthcare workers who don't want to take vaccines, who don't want to be involved in uh, things that they're not sure about. Um, and if you look, for example, to the UK, uh, you know, there is there are very serious campaigns being launched with ethnic minority groups who were very suspicious that they were first in line to get the vaccine. Why? Because they have never been first in line to get anything before. Um, and even if you look at our own mixed race residents of the mother and baby homes and industrial schools, what vaccines were they first in line to get as children? Vaccine trials without consent. So there are very key reasons why groups who are suspicious of government, who have experienced poor health care or been subject to health care abuse. That includes a lot of women. If the cervical check scandal, for example, you know, and look yes. who the head of NEFID is. You know, yes, so th those suspicions matter because they start you on that journey of can I find a way to protect myself in this really scary global problem? Uh, how do I keep myself alive and keep myself well and mind the other people in my network? Uh, and conspiracy theories is where people end up. Sure. Okay. But then, so you said something there that would have found quite interesting is that the challenging how at the same time as people kind of a lot a lot of these groups might purport to be the challengers mm. the interrogators of government the interrogators of the status quo knowledge and you know whatever else at the same time their ideas seem to be quite brittle um uh, and quite kind of uh, they seem to be quite scared of having a, any real interrogation happen of their own kind of beliefs well, yeah, well, you can say like surely, as you mentioned about you know highly educated individuals, you know, and friends who were like, oh, don't challenge me. You're like, is that not indicative of enough that like if they can't even defend the argument, then it's probably a bad place to be starting anyway. You know, yeah, like this nurse, yeah. th th this nurse that Sinead, sorry to cut you off there, Lucy, but it was just like this nurse um, said to Sinead, oh, you know, if I was to really air my views, they would have me in the, the loony asylum. So she's like, oh, you're pointing at the, for those of you at home yeah. listening, <laughs> Lucy's pointing at the screen. They're like, aha, I got you. The people who are, who are engaged with thinking in this way, right, who are interested in following this line of thought, let's say, right? Because I don't want to use the term enamored or anything like that, but interested in engaging this line of thought and increasingly persuaded by it. They are not necessarily the people that you hear on the radio or in the protests pushing these lines. They're people who are looking for an explanation. And they're also being told at the same time that having accepted a particular explanation, they shouldn't talk to other people about it because it won't be accepted. So they're made more isolated by the very people who are selling them the conspiracy theories. That means, right. it, why do they do that? Why would they want to isolate the people who are buying their conspiracy theories? Because they want to separate them from us. If my auntie is the one who finds a conspiracy theory online, they do not want me to be able to sit down over a cup of tea with her and persuade her away from it. They want her to be paranoid that the only reason I'm turning up at her house, and I'm creating a fictional auntie here, by the way, uh, but they, they, yeah. they want me... They want the moment I turn up at her house for her to say, 
don't talk me out of it. I'm not talking it to you. I'm not explaining it to you. You'll talk me out of it, right? So the, right. the whole point is to divide those people looking for an explanation from those of us who might try and offer them an alternative one. And that's why it's a really difficult balance in talking to our friends and family who've been taken in by the conspiracy theories or who are on that journey. Um, on the one hand, we don't want to empathize with what can be quite hateful anti-Semitic views embedded in a lot of the conspiracy theories um, or other kinds of, of, of prejudice and biased views. But at the same time, we have to show that we're open to listening enough that we keep them from isolating themselves from us completely. Okay, so you had made that distinction. I can't remember in what, because I've been asked a, a fair uh, time, you've chatted to a few people about on this subject, and uh, I can't remember which one of the podcasts it was I was listening to you uh, discussing this about, but you, you made the distinction between empathizing and sympathizing. Um, so when you're talking to someone, could you just elaborate on that a little bit more? If, you know, and there's been a couple of incidents, incidences, instances in my life where I've had someone turn around with some pretty effing bonker ideas bonkers ideas you can um, get more than i do andrew i don't know if you're attracting this i don't know i must attract <laughs> well here's the thing i'm going to say i must attract the crazies but as we've just been saying they don't necessarily have to be crazy they can just be deeply insecure i guess but so you know someone comes to you lucy and, and says you know oh i think that uh you know, they're putting microchips in the vaccines and Bill Gates is following us and whatever. How do you respond to someone like that? One, I'm grateful that they even say it to me because it, you know, it gives me a, a chink in the armor to open up. Um, the challenge is hmm. for me is to say, okay, tell me more. I'm listening. Not, I accept your ideas. So I don't want to be going, yeah, yeah, sure. I agree with you on that point. Yeah, go on. What I'm saying is, hmm, that's interesting. I'd love to hear why you're interested in that. Or what led you down that path? Uh, so it's listening in an open way without, without giving them the impression that you automatically agree. Because once you give them the impression that you agree, they will try and persuade you down their point of view. And then you have lost any opportunity to, uh, to have a more balanced conversation. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I've done in the past is I've said to somebody, I'm really surprised you hold these views because I've always thought of you as somebody who did X. You were always somebody who was very open and empathetic with everybody. And I feel that maybe you're not so open anymore. Can you tell me about that? Oh, so you're flattering them, are you? Yeah, <laughs> well, a little. But it's not untrue. It's not untrue what I'm saying about them. You know, these are my family and friends, yeah. right? Or my neighbors or my colleagues. I'm genuinely saying to them, I thought you were this kind of person with these kinds of values. And you're surprising me now because those values you had that I knew you for seem to be changing. And I think that's okay. You can say to people, gosh, I always thought you were, uh, you know, th that I didn't think you kind of had those ideas about people. I thought you were more open than that. What's happened? Yeah. And to really get them to talk about the journey, why did they get uh, interested in these ideas and what are they doing for them is a much more productive conversation than to argue with them about the rightness of the explanations. So what I really want is to open up a conversation that I can keep open for weeks or months at a time without them feeling that I'm just tolerating their ideas or agreeing with them. But I want them, I right. want to be able to come back, you know, not to try and win something, but to, but to keep that person close enough to me with an open enough relationship that I can keep having this conversation about the kind of person that I know them to be. And I want to bring them back 
to that kind of person. You can only do that, that if you really lot. appreciate that this was a person you loved and respected before they had crazy conspiracy theories. And that's the person you want yes. back. You've got to win them back. Right. So that makes sense in terms of, um, well, there's a couple of interesting points that I think were raised there for me anyway. One is, you know, that's working on the assumption that there is someone that you do, you've known mm. before, right? I mean, if you're approached by strangers, another case in point, I've, I've told Jeff this one before, but sure, I'll tell you. Um, my neighbors, who will obviously go unnamed, but um, their sister came to visit. I think she lives in Dublin for the most part, but she came down to where we are in the west of Ireland. And she, um, well, I'd never met her before, but cut a long story short, when I sort of said, oh, oh, I won't shake your hand because, well, obvious reasons, she kind of went off on one and said, um, oh, you don't believe in the, you know, the scamdemic, the plandemic, you know, you, you've heard it all before. She's not a healthcare worker as well. She was actually a former nurse, funny mm-hmm. enough. Once, oh, I'm beginning to see mm-hmm. a trend here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> don't trust the health service. <laughs> but anyway, she, she went off on one and, oh, you know, Google New World Order and all that kind of thing, to which I was left kind of speechless. I mean, what do you, how do you reply to strangers when it comes to that kind of thing? Is it the same kind of... What are you trying to achieve is the question I would ask. Are you trying to win the argument with them? Are you trying to tell them you know better than them? Or are you trying to explain your position? If you just don't want to w- shake their hand, just walk away. Say, I'm sorry, I don't agree and walk away. Uh, if there's somebody that your friend cares about, you know, say, oh, look, we'll respectfully disagree and then have a word with your friend afterwards and say, you know, how do you feel? Do you want a hand in trying to open up that conversation? What can I do to help? So I think you you really got to think about what you're trying to achieve in any of this, that we can all be shell-shocked by the announcement. You know, I'd been working with a woman for months and then she messaged me out of the blue, like, I'm going to go and do this thing and I'm changing my life. And I suddenly believe in all this stuff. And I just, and it was very early on. It was right at the start of the pandemic. That's a real woman. This isn't like the fictitious No, this is a real real colleague. And she's an incredible woman. And I just thought, oh my God, I don't even know how to respond. So with Fingal Communities Against Racism and uh, Unite the Union and a number of other community groups since, um, we, um, some people in our group have put together, put a lot of work into developing a, a piece of work around difficult conversations is what we've called it. Now, it actually came out of a leaflet that we wrote when a certain far-right candidate ran in Fingal last year. And uh, right. it was an anti-immigration candidate, although she very often went door to door talking about reviving the Catholic Church and Ireland's Catholic values rather than her anti-immigration platform. And, and she was soundly beaten, you know. Um, you know, we talked about the, the kinds of issues that her material raised and that were being raised in the Fingal area by far-right groups. And so we called this leaflet Difficult Conversations and we drew a lot on expertise internationally. What do you do if somebody at your dinner table, you know, talks against, against immigrants? You know, what do you do if you want to raise issues with your family or your friends? And so we we drew on that expertise to do a very simple leaflet during the general election to help people think about it. We got a hugely positive response on the streets, just handing those leaflets out, people saying, gosh, I always wondered how to do this. This is great. Where do I find out more? And so that's developed into a whole series of trainings um, that I can take no credit for, um, but out of our network, which have been about getting people to practice these difficult conversations entirely engaged firstly with kind of anti-immigrant sentiment but increasingly around conspiracy theories because it's not easy to take people on as you've discovered you 
you find yourself on the defensive yeah. almost of ideas that you weren't questioning. How do you how do oh, you respond? Totally. Yeah, but that's interesting as well is that, you know, a lot of people do say, and I know you've you've referenced this before in previous discussions, but a lot of people will say, well, conspiracy theories don't necessarily mean right wing. And yet you've you have alluded to just there, you know, um racism and candidates and you're you you are, you know, one of the leading figures in the Fingal together against racism, and so what's the overlap in conspiracy theories and racism? Well, I mean, how did the two meet? Well, uh, right at the start of the pandemic, we saw that groups that had previously been engaged with uh, anti-immigrant sentiment were increasingly engaged with anti-mask movements, um, and then COVID conspiracy, um, and then gradually reaching into the kind of bigger international. Uh, conspiracy. So the David Ick stuff, um, the QAnon, yeah. and there became increasing um, overlaps in that. Um, and, you know, it, and actually that QAnon, uh, you know, the lizard stuff, uh, like that, a lot of that is very racist at its core. So there are deeply anti-Semitic tropes within all of the COVID conspiracy stuff about, you know, a Jew, Jewish global elite who are controlling them. We had that in the anti-immigrant yeah. stuff because of George Soros. You know, everybody on the left is supposed to be paid for by George Soros. And, you know, if I could count... If I had a penny okay. for every time that insult was thrown at me, you know, I'd be a very wealthy woman. Um, but like everybody yeah. else uh, on broad left, I'm still waiting for the check from George Soros. Um, yeah. So, but, you know, look, take, for example, our Lord Mayor of Dublin, Hazel Chu. Protesters turned up at her door in a very threatening, scary way, um, calling her the lizard mayor, right? Now... It, 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 and and the I mean, and the dragon mare, right? And there's there's yeah. an overlap here, right? One, you know, the dragon thing is is both anti-Chinese, but it's also directly related to the lizard idea of a political elite that's run by a Jewish global elite that is creating the scamdemic, right? So uh, anti-Semitic, anti-Chinese, um, and broadly racist ideas are deeply embedded in so much of this stuff, which is why I have an interest in it, because my area is and always has been trying to understand racism, which is why I've ended up in this. Other people have come into us through, you know, feminist politics. Okay, you know, there's my overlap. Um, other people have come in through an interest in political movements. You know, you talked to Mark Malone uh, the other day. Um, for me, I came in through that through that lens of racism and trying to understand it that way. So what I find fascinating as well um, is that the different ways that we're approaching this, right? You talk in terms of, um, you know, opportunities for discussion or otherwise walking away. You also talk about, and I'll ask you to elaborate on it a little bit more if you don't mind, not giving names as you have uh, pointedly done when referencing the uh, female mm -hmm. candidate uh, to people. But when they're, you know, groups who are taking a far more active street level kind of, um, kind of action. Is there an argument from your research, what benefits or what uh, gains are there to be made from kind of uh, Antifa or kind of street level responses, which I think I seem to remember, though we never expressly mentioned, mentioned Antifa with Mark, his just, he was talking about kind of community responses. And I don't know to what varying levels he might have been referring to actively kind of jumping on the streets with masks and stuff. But is there a space for that or is discourse the only way? Oh, listen, you know I, mean. I would differentiate very much between 
the conversations you want to be able to have with people one-to-one in your friends and family and your wider network, the way you want to support your community to have those discussions and allowing uh, groups that want to manipulate public debate to have a platform to do so. I, I think they're very two, they're right. two very different things. You know, if you give those groups a platform with those racist tropes, anti-Semitic, anti-Chinese, deeply embedded in their conversations, you are giving a platform to incitement to hatred, right? And, and I don't think there's any room for that in, um, in a country where we believe that everybody has human rights to safety, right? That everybody should have the right to full participation in the public sphere. To platform groups that specifically want to deny not only that place in the public sphere, but also very basic human rights, including to life, to certain groups, I think is a real problem. So, you know, very often when uh, extremist groups are trying to create trouble locally, they want a platform, they want to create a name for themselves. And so we specifically do not give them that name, that we don't give them that um, uh, that, that fire. Very interesting because last year when we were, last year, gosh, two years ago, when we were um, in the midst of that Fingal election, yeah. right? And we put out a press release to a number of different broadcasters. We wanted to talk about the Irish Network Against Racism, anti-racism election protocol which had been taken up by some groups across the country, but we really decided to go for it. Uh, and we had 10 out of the 11 candidates signed it. So basically everybody except the candidate, we were just calling the far-right candidate. So this particular radio show, morning radio show, rang us up and said, look, we have a problem. We want to interview you, but you can't mention her name. We said, we don't want to. Uh, we um, were really worried about the legal thing. I was like, that's okay. I've got a law degree, you know, and my, and my dissertation <laughs> was on libel and freedom of expression. So, you know, well, insofar yeah. as, you know, and my whole career has been around racism and, you know, how you deplatform that. And um, so I was like, look, I'm your ideal girl to come on and talk about this because we are never going to mention her name. They were still nervous, you know, they were still back and forward with their legal team. And uh, so, you know, I'd reassure them constantly. And we went in, we did a lovely session. We talked about how wonderful the 10 candidates out of the 11 were. We kept saying 10 out of 11 have signed this. You know, we're pushing for people to really give those 10 their votes and ignore the other. You know, we never had to mention that person's name or give her airtime in order to emphasize the difference between what she stood for and what everybody else stood for. It, it was a very strategic move, but it, you know, people came to understand when they picked up our leaflet at a train station across Fingal, they'd say, oh, who are you talking about? And we said, just take the leaflet, read it, and in two or three yeah. days' time, you'll have worked it out. Or some people would see the headline and they'd go, oh, not her again. We're like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but then many other people never understood that it was that candidate because of the way they presented themselves to certain audiences. Um, so, you know, it, it really is what are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to give them a name? And if you're trying to give them a name, is it going to work better for you or for them? It, it's a balance. Yeah, very good points. So I guess that brings, and sorry, Jeff, if I keep like jumping in no, here all the time, but um, it is a subject quite close to my heart as well. I can't tell, we've discussed social media before. Uh, and you know, I, for one, used to be fairly guilty of, you know, the calling out and whatever else and uh, naming names and whatnot. So you would say that when it comes to, you know, personalities, it's the cult of personality that you want to avoid and focus on the ideas instead. Is that a fair kind of summation of what you're saying? 
yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, so I, I guess, sorry, go ahead. I was go ahead. just going to give you an example. Our local uh, county newspaper covered the general election. Guess which candidate they put the photo of in the article about all the candidates? The one we didn't no. want to name. Really? Because she was the most controversial. And they were the, she was the one they thought would, people would read the article for. So they put her photo there instead of any of the other 10. Well, so, I mean, that's just, it's abysmal, although you understand the business. Well, it's a classic media it. approach. Of course, it's always going to be the one they go for, you know, yeah. unfortunately. So the, so the most responsible thing that we, I mean, we're obviously nowhere near on par with, you know, <laughs> local community papers or any newspaper or anything. We're just a, our little kind of podcasts, but we shouldn't be naming names at all when we're discussing subjects like this, should we? On our I, social I media. I think that if you are naming names, you do it carefully and in context. Um, but right. just retweeting or uh, amplifying a name, particularly on social media where the algorithms work to amplify the name and nothing else, that's dangerous. Yeah. Uh, so, you yeah. know, you can put asterisks in somebody's name or you can replace them with a, with a symbol, uh, which is very often what we do. Um, and those things will not show in the algorithm. That's good advice, isn't it, Jeff? Mm. With just asterisks mm-hmm. and symbols that everyone gets. That's good to know. Um, but that uh, I've got another question about grifters because that's the other points that comes up, right? Is there are so many people I've noticed here in Ireland, well, everywhere really, but there are names that pop up in Ireland now who, and they, they seem to be kind of proliferating in a, in a way. They're like, I don't know, mushroom seeds or something. <laughs> it's just like popping up everywhere, like fungus, where they gain a following and they just play to that following all the time and they, they get a name. How many of those do you reckon from your background and your research? I mean, do they believe their own grift? Are these people who believe or what's, what are they motivated by or some genuine or some not? If they believe their own grift, they wouldn't be grifters. <laughs> um, yeah, right. You know, you, you, you can tell, I think, when you engage with some of the the people you describe as grifters and, and Mark, Mark Malone, of course, has done quite a bit of work on, on, on kind of trying to define, you know, who's involved with what we call grift. And, and grift largely, I mean, this is not an excellent definition off the top of my head, but somebody who is um, really using political or cultural ideas to create something beyond what they believe in and to build, to raise money or to build a profile um, that is not really uh, commensurate with the work that they're doing uh, on the issue, right? Now, um, you could say that that issue, I mean, we we talk about far-right grifters, right? But, I mean, grift could be about anything, okay? It's it's people who are using an issue to make more money, you know, and and there's plenty of examples of them over the years. Um, In this case, what you see is that, uh, for example, you might have a lawyer who raises a lot of money on GoFundMe, who oh, then yes. posts on GoFundMe that in fact it's not possible to carry out the work that all the money was raised for, but the money will go towards a future campaign ish slash issue. Oh, and so, wow. and then you say, okay, well, where did that money go? Um, and yeah. you know, if you've got people who are genuinely fundraising for something, you'll find there's some accountability. They are happy to be accountable to their their funders their donators about you know what funds have been raised where they're going what they're being used for 
the grifter doesn't. The grifter sets up multiple GoFundMes, makes them all entirely untraceable, um, overlaps with what the things are for so that you can't track the money, encourages other people to fundraise on their behalf so that it's not all traceable to them. Um, you know, you might even get somebody who sets up a merchandise shop, uh, again, to create income that is not necessarily going towards the, the work that you think that they're creating, whether you agree with it or not. Um, so, yes, yeah. we're increasingly seeing far-right grifters uh, in this country. It's not unusual, and YouTube creates a lot of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose I would like to hear a little bit more, unless, you know, Jeff, <laughs> I can see Jeff sat there going, all right, fucking Andrew, you're on, off on one. <laughs> Poor off, Jeff, off can't get a word like- in between the two of us. <laughs> I know, yeah. Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's good. <laughs> um, but uh, I guess that then one of the things I'm curious about is yourself and how you got into this in the first place. When we chatted on the phone just prior to this, you mentioned that I think it was age of 22 that you went off to um, put really simply study racism. <laughs> um, do you want to talk us through a little bit your journey and kind of why? Sure. Yeah. I mean, look. Uh, that was 20 years ago and um, at the grand old age of 42, I feel like a wise woman here. Uh, not quite. Um, I, 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 I was really lucky to grow up um, going to diversely populated schools, uh, which wasn't the case for everybody in Ireland in the 1980s. Um, and I took for granted that there were people of different religions and different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. Um, and I, I was shocked in a way when I got to university and discovered that that was not what the rest of Ireland looked like. I mean, I had a kind of broad idea, uh, but not it, other people did not have the t- same taken for granted assumptions that, as I did that there were other perspectives. Now, I, I'm not claiming in any way, shape or form that my ideas about Ireland were not as white and mainstream and settled as everybody else's. You know, I, you, do you ever question that we've never had a, a female Taoiseach or, you know, this, this kind of stuff, right? You, you take for granted the things in your world. So did the kids from ethnic minority and, uh, and, uh, and faith minority backgrounds in my class, right? That you take for granted the world around you. But I was surprised that um, there was such a narrow view amongst many of the people I met in university. Um, and I was studying law. Uh, I started to realise that the jurisprudence of Ireland, the treatment of ethnic minorities and religions in Ireland in the past had been problematic. And I was looking around, this was 2000, I was looking around at Ireland that was becoming more visibly diverse. I guess we'd always been diverse in many ways, but, um, and I was learning about, you know, the position of travellers and I was learning about um, new immigrants. And I really too... I'll be honest with you, it didn't give much thought to travellers until many years later, but but it raised the questions for me about how would new immigrants fit in Ireland if there were so many people right. I already knew uh, knew personally and knew about who didn't fit, who weren't allowed to fit, how would any new immigrants fit? And so I really set off to the UK with an idea that I was going to look at integration um, in my naivety. Uh, and um, I had just spent, you know, I'd spent the summer in San Francisco and I'd seen the impact of racial segregation and I'd heard about uh, this in the UK. And, you know, naively you go off and you think you're going to solve the world's problems, right? But actually I spent um, an amazing 12 years in England um, really learning from incredibly generous ethnic minority groups who... Uh, you know, uh, taught me so much more than my academic courses ever did. Um, so I did a master's and a PhD in the UK on those areas. 
Um, and my research all the time was embedded in ethnic minority communities as a participant observer, uh, living with and working with the people that I was studying uh, and trying to do that as ethically as possible um, to, to varying degrees of success. And um, then in 2014, I moved to Belfast uh, for work. I worked at Ulster University and again, I was quite interested in uh, how ethnic minorities were getting on in the new Northern Ireland and the way that they were constantly cast as the other. So you could be a Catholic, a Republican, you could be Protestant, Unionist, Loyalist, or you could be the other. And, um, you know, people kept trying to say to me, which community are you from? You know, like, well, I'm obviously the other, but uh, nobody wants to let me be the other because I wasn't brown. Um, so, but 2013, I started working with the Irish Network Against Racism. I was still living in the UK. I hadn't moved back yet. Um, but I met at a conference, Shane O'Curry, who's the director of INR. We were talking about racism and policing. I had been doing, uh, my PhD was on um, leadership in Muslim communities since 2001, with particular focus on the policing of young Muslims and radicalization. Uh, which I guess leads nice. all to my, also to my interest in the far right now. Um, and I met Shane and we were talking about racial profiling in Ireland, still an issue we talk about most, most days. Um, and uh, we set up iReport.ie uh, and I've been doing the work on that uh, ever since and that's nearly eight years. Uh, so wow. being back in, in Dublin since 2014, uh, I've been able to just expand that work um, and really bring my activism home, which uh, is, a, is a privilege. Yes, that's just, wow. I mean, when do you get the time to breathe, really? <laughs> it's, you know, that was one of the things that, you know, we ended up asking Mark as well, right? Jeff was, um, you know, when you're immersed in, obviously you're learning a lot, but at the same time, you're, you're being confronted with a lot of the kind of less, less lovely sides to, to humanity, really. Um, like, how do you sustain your, I'm assuming that part of what drives you is a sort of, a certain optimism or a certain hope. To some extent, it's not. It's clearly not purely academic or clinical. It's it's uh, impassioned. So, where do you get that optimism from? Are there like cases or anecdotes along the way where you've turned people for one of a better way of putting it? I, I don't think I've I, I've always been an optimist for sure. I believe that people uh, can change and can act better towards one another. Um, and I think probably what's helpful is that. You know, when I look at racism, I don't see people who are racist and people who are not. You know, our society was built in that way. And all of us, to some extent, uh, either take for granted certain things that are around those barriers built up around who can belong and who can't, who can do certain jobs and or go to certain schools and who cannot. Um, and that means that any or all of us can be embedded in racist uh, processes and outcomes, whether we think about it or not. And maybe that's scary to, to someone who hasn't really thought about this before. You know, I, I love there's a quote um, that your racism is like a boat that you have to keep scooping. Uh, you know, your, your life is a boat. The racism is the water you've got to keep scooping out, you know, to stay afloat. Oh, wow. um, that's a good one. Yeah, I am a sailor, so I quite like that analogy. Um, but to me, that's the, it's the everyday thing of it creeps in without you thinking about it. You can end up in a workplace that will never hire certain people, but and you mightn't think about it for years. And then suddenly one day you turn around and you go, oh, hang on a second, like where are the people who are not here? 
Or are there some people in my workplace who don't fit, who've never been allowed to fit or never allowed to progress? Are there children in my children's school who just aren't allowed to fit or who will never feel like they belong or who are always kind of held up as the you know, model minority or the fun person on culture day or whatever it is. And um, so I think every single one of us in our lives, it, regardless of what you do day in, day out, you come in contact with people. If you think in Ireland, 15% of people were born outside of Ireland. So one in seven of the people you meet, work with, go to school with, go to church with, uh, go to the shops with, see in the pub, are likely to be a, a, either, you know, a migrant. Um, they may have been here for 20 or 30 years, but they might be a migrant. If if you are not seeing one in seven people born outside Ireland in your circle or your daily life, there's a problem. And, and we know that that problem is there because the labour market is pushing people into certain kinds of jobs. The housing market is putting, pushing people into certain kinds of areas. You know, the number of children of migrants that are in DASH schools, for example, deeply under-resourced, um, nice. you know, th- that segregation is there all the time. So we actually have to actively fight that segregation. And that can seem like a big job, but I just keep bringing it back to the everyday. Like if everybody was doing one or two little things to change that, it would change much more quickly. But it's if you think about racism as this big problem that you have to solve, it's scary. You, yeah. you're like, who can think about it? It's like saying, let's change, challenge poverty overnight. You know, yeah, it's not going to happen. Absolutely. You know, or let's stop war overnight. Well, you can go out and you can protest, but you're not going to stop it overnight. You've got to take those little gradual steps. Um, so where do I get the energy from? Probably because I, my work has taught me to go out and meet people and, and, you know, really try and learn from as many people as possible. And you could study racism in a very academic way and be stuck in the the dire system that it is and the awful things that it creates. But when you actually take that as part of our everyday life, then you're working with people who are actively fighting racism day in, day out. And that fight is energizing. Uh you know, it, it's, and That's... you've got to enjoy the good times with people as you as you're fighting that exclusion. You can't just say, "Oh, I'm turning up to help you with those barriers." That's it's not how this works. No, that's that's actually really inspiring to hear. Um, if so, I guess if if you had like you know two or three, or even just the one, I guess one anti-racism top tip is it? Yeah, well. <laughs> One action that's, you know, anyone could take. We started off at the top of this this conversation. We were talking about uh, difficult conversations, right? Um, it, is one, would would that be one of the main takeaways, you know, oh, try to have those difficult conversations? Or, you know, what what kind of actionables would you say to the average Joe who really, or, or Josette or Josephine, <laughs> um, who, you know, has, uh, you know, perhaps has a family to take care of or is doing a minimum wage job and doesn't have the time or the resources to, you know, actively campaign. What could you be doing on the day to day that might contribute or help make the world a better place? No pressure. Do you know, can I confess that I kind of hate this question and it's not because I couldn't give you 20 things that people should do or could do. 
last year, after the Black Lives Matter protests, we saw just hundreds, thousands of articles telling you, you could do all this reading and you could join all these groups and you could go to these places and you could do this protest and you could write to your uh, politicians and so on. But for me, yeah. when I do the work with employers or activists or uh, with government, you know, with NGOs, the thing I'm always saying to them is, what is happening in your organization or in your life right now? And can you find one thing where you can make a difference? So, yeah, you may have to do a bit of reading around that and you might have to skill up a bit, but the resources are out there. You don't have to read the same anti-racism books as everyone else. You don't have to read 20 things that the New York Times told you was the thing to read on racism. And by the way, that'll all be American and you should really read Irish stuff if you're going to go and read stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what, what could do? Look, you hire people, right? Think about the way that you write your job spec. And there is loads of stuff about how you write your job spec. So women are less likely to apply for jobs if they have a long list of desirables, right? So you've got your essential characteristics and your desirables for a job. Cut the desirable list and you'll get more women applying. And the same is true for ethnic minorities and migrants. So if you skill up in one thing you could change, it might be hiring someone, it might be uh, changing the, the, the creators you stock in your shop, it might be changing the people you feature in your podcast, it might be, um, you know, who your kids invite to their birthday party, you know, whatever is happening in your life, you could do one thing that you get good at. So it doesn't have to be a scary thing, start from where you are. Um, if it's your kids, you know, get them reading a wider history, you know, read more fun stories about, you know, pirates and kings from other countries, not just from a UK American centric model. And you can do these little things in your life. And as you do them, you will find that you build, you get curious, you build on them one by one, and you do it in the things that you're passionate about. If you love movies, go and watch some great movies from directors or actors that you don't normally watch same with music see i don't think that anti-racism has to be something that is hard work there is hard work involved in it sure because you're going to get uncomfortable but you don't have to set out to make it hard work you can set out in a way that you find something you already love and build that as part of your passion and if you do that you'll keep doing it it doesn't become a chore it's become something that you're really interested in and it's embedded in what you do it becomes part of you that's honestly one of the best fucking answers i've had to that question in a while that was really that was really good um the points that you made about um you mentioned at one point, oh, it's having people from, you know, different backgrounds and stuff on a podcast, for example, and whatever. I hear you. We want to be doing a little bit more of that. We've had a kind of fairly uh, specific kind of segment of society on, and we do, we are striving to get more people on that, for example. Um, that was brilliant advice. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, as to having the difficult conversations, you know, I hope to, have, to, to be able to tackle those a little bit better um, myself, Jeff. Um, do you want to have any difficult conversations? Shall we have a difficult conversation? Uh, well, no, I was just thinking, I was talking about, when you were talking about your leaflets and your brochures, I'm thinking there's probably a great market for <laughs> that for people who would be returning to a workplace where they're likely to encounter a lot of these views with work colleagues that they haven't seen in quite some time, yeah. who may now have turned the corner into some disturbing views and stuff. That would be, I think, because you're mixing both you know, the aspect of people you know and a professional workspace and how to tackle that. Have any advice for people in that maybe? And a pure like workplace point of view? Well, I'd say one, if you're a manager or employer, um, you can be quite clear about what the values of your organization are and that 
people can talk about whatever they want in their private time. But if they are bringing things into the workplace that do not reflect the values of your organization, they should take them elsewhere. So it's not that you're banning certain conversations or whatever else. Um, you know, I had this conversation with an employer who at a Christmas party had an employee who started to tell very racist jokes and he just didn't know how in the middle of this party context to, to bring it up. And I said, you know, when that happens, it's very easy to just say, I'm sorry, that's not the values we hold here. Change the conversation. And if you keep doing that, uh, it's not that you're saying you can't talk about that. It's saying well, there are particular values here. What I would say for, for when people go back to work is to acknowledge this. People who are from ethnic minority or migrant backgrounds have experienced a, a lot less harassment over the last year because many of them were, have worked from home and people don't put racial harassment into email or Zoom or Skype or Teams conversations. Many of them are nervous about going back to the workplace. And those people who are, uh, who've been come enamored with, with some of these ideas online may well be bringing ideas or language that are particularly threatening to minorities. So I'd say really think about who in your organization you might want to have that extra cup of coffee with, even if it's over Zoom, uh, you know, who you want to say, hey, how'd you get on? How are you going? And just, you know, just just check in with people that you think might be feeling a bit threatened by some of those ideas and to talk to your employer if you think that they're becoming something that's that's a problem. There will be people who leave the workplace because their conspiracy theories are not accepted by management or their colleagues. Um, there will be people who go through disciplinary processes because of the outright um, hateful stuff that they're bringing back into the workplace. Um, and, you know, what's, this is not, as I said to you before, this is not confined to some kinds of people. We, we track every year um, incidents of racism by public sector employees towards service users and other uh, colleagues. Right. And that has decreased significantly since the lockdown, <laughs> again, because of online communication and email. So it's right across our society. Yeah. That's that's. Well, it shows you too that like they're not that brave when it can, there's a record of it and they can be called out, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was fantastic, Lucy. Thank you so much for people listening in. Um, uh, Lucy does have uh, a website, LucyMichael.ie, um, and uh, you can learn more about the uh, various projects and consultancy and training and research uh, that Dr. Lucy Michael uh, offers. Um, we will be linking lots of other resources and information in the show notes below. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoy that. Thanks yeah. for joining us. Me too. Thank you so much for such an enjoyable chat.